Eli Ross' History of Horror Uncut is a Shudder original podcast. Download the app or visit Shudder.com to begin your seven-day free trial. I'm Shudder curator Sam Zimmerman. This is the History of Horror Uncut, an essential audio companion to Eli Roth's History of Horror. Eli Roth's History of Horror is a seven-episode docuseries threading the evolution and immortality of the genre and all its terrors within. These are the full, candid interviews, most of which can only be found and heard right here in this podcast. You'll hear how the genre shaped these filmmakers, authors, makeup maestros. You'll hear the personal, unbridled appreciation that only comes from those who know how special horror can be. Welcome to a more intimate history of horror. The History of Horror Uncut is built with the full, raw interviews conducted in production for Eli Roth's History of Horror. In some cases, Eli leads the talk itself, and others, our deeply knowledgeable producer, Kurt Sayanga, steps in. So today, Kurt's going to introduce you to Catherine Hardwick. This is a versatile, thoughtful filmmaker. She took on an adaptation that everyone underestimated and then helped create a fever pitch, polarizing phenomenon in Twilight. Catherine Hardwick is not a genre director, and the reason I say that is because she can't really be pegged down to one type of movie, right? She broke out with 13, uh, an adolescent psychodrama about a troubled teen. Then she made skating biopic, Lords of Dogtown, and then, of course, Twilight. What she brought to all is this intimate, searching eye, this indie sensibility, and that connected deeply with fans of the first Twilight. This brought the comparatively small first film in the series to a worldwide box office success of over $390 million, and then several, several, several sequels. Here, the curious, open Hardwick talks her own brushes with genre and vampire tales, the production, development, and casting of Twilight, what she brought to the film, and of course, she talks Twilight impact and sometimes the interesting lack thereof in the industry. Here now is Catherine Hardwick. Listen up, ghouls. So, hello. Hey. <laughs> Could you tell me who you are? Oh, yeah. I'm Catherine Hardwick. I'm a director. Did Twilight. That's why I'm here, I guess. <laughs> so, were you actually uh, at all interested in vampires or anything like that before you became involved with this series? Well, I think, um, you know, as a kid... Um, we love the idea of a vampire, you know, and just being terrified and scared and somebody that would suck your blood and, you know, especially if they're handsome. You know, zombies aren't very hot, so we don't really fantasize about zombies, but vampires are pretty cool and I'd always been intrigued by them. And then I guess I got the book and I read it and I thought, wow, this is a totally different approach. You know, Stephanie Myers wrote something that just drew you in and made you feel like that crazy, giddy, intoxicating feeling of being in love for the first time. And I thought, I wonder if I can capture that on film. And one thing I thought was really cool about it is I'd seen a lot of vampire movies, Interview with a Vampire and all kinds of things where you were in these like scary, dark streets in London or Paris. But I'd never seen vampires in like the Pacific Northwest in a forest. And I love, I love forest. I love moss and I love big trees. And I thought, wow, that'd be so fun to see these vampires in the trees, you know. Tell me a little, what's the plot, roughly speaking, of Twilight? Well, the thing that's kind of cool about Twilight is you have an ordinary girl that moves to this small town in Washington. She has to live with her dad for a while. She hadn't seen him in a while. She feels like a misfit, awkward. And first day of school, she basically is attracted to this amazing and strange man, you know, strange kid that's Edward. And she gradually, and he's very attracted to her, and she doesn't understand why, and he's got this mysterious group of brothers and sisters that we start to find out there's something very mysterious about him. But it's very grounded, like you feel like you're in an ordinary high school and it's an ordinary girl, and that's what's kind of cool about it. This could happen to me. This could exist in the real world. That that cute kid could be a vampire. <laughs> I think so this whole, you know, you get drawn deeper into this world. The vampires, I mean, the vampires also seem more like they're wealthier, they're more aristocrats, basically, so versus uh, 
Bella, who's, you know, from more, you know, her dad's a cop, right? Right, right. So they're sophisticated. The vampires are sophisticated. Of course, you know, she falls in love with Edward, who's been alive for 112 years or something. So he's, you know, more educated about music and everything. So there's that attractive feeling. And the one line that everybody loves, how old are you? 17. Well, how long have you been 17? <laughs> a while. <laughs> To visualize that, first of all, what was, uh, you know, sometimes with adaptations, uh, the film crew or directors have nothing to do with the writer and the source material. Uh, were you actually in touch with Stephanie during this process? Oh, yes, I was in touch with Stephanie Myers. She's wonderful. And she had, at that exact time that we were making the movie, she was writing, I believe, the third book. She was writing another book called The Host, and she was on promotion, and she has three kids. So she was very busy, but she was able to come to the set a couple of times and bring her family, and we thought it was going to be so nice when she came to visit us at the beach uh, in Oregon, and that was the stormiest, most violent, rainy day ever. But she's a trooper, and she also had input, you know, like I would send her pictures of people I was imagining casting so that she could feel good about that. And uh, she she liked the script. She liked the way we kind of um, elaborated on, in a way, made it more cinematic. You know, because in the book, you're just re you're in the headspace of Bella the whole time. It's very internal. But, you know, I wanted to make that visual and exciting. So we did this whole, like, treetop sequence and other things that aren't in the book, but they were kind of the spirit of the book. Yeah, it never shifts from her POV, does it? So you're always she, on her. She's pretty much always there. There's a couple cutaways to the nomadic vampires, but mostly we're with Bella. What's the casting process like? Uh, oh, it's a really fun chain of events, but I went and saw an early screening of Into the Wild, and I saw Kristen Stewart in that scene in the trailer with Emile Hirsch, and she just embodied like the essence of longing and desire, but in a subtle and powerful way. I thought, oh, I really want her to be Bella. She should be Bella. And so I, I got uh, Summit to let me fly out to Pittsburgh while she was doing another movie there. And I brought another actor with me and we just improvised for like six hours and ran around the park and chased pigeons and did all kinds of scenes and stuff. And I'm like, she's got to be Bella. And I think she really brought a lot of depth to that character. And then uh, who in the world is going to be the most handsome man in the world and look 17 years old and be soulful and a great actor? That was a difficult search to find Rob Pattinson. He had been in uh, one of the Harry Potters, and but that had been like five years before. So he kind of changed and, you know, had a wandering pathway. And when and I talked to him on the phone in London because I couldn't find anyone here. All the cute guys look kind of like cute guys next door. And I wanted that ethereal quality or that special sort of timeless quality. So I talked to him and I'm like, why don't you come out here? We don't have any money to fly you out, but why don't you come out and audition with Kristen? So on his own dime, he flew out and he stayed on his agent's couch. He came over, he had black bangs. He was a little bit heavier than at the bar for a while. And he didn't really look like the Rob that we know and love now, but we had like five different guys. My top five guys came over to my house and then Kristen did scenes with each of them, even on my bed, the kissing scene and all. And at the end, Kristen and I were like, it's got to be Rob. And then he went on to like a whole training program, did his hair and the eyebrows and, you know, just got really physical because he knew this vampire was going to be physical and play baseball and fight and everything. Yeah, they're, they have an interesting dynamic between them, too. And it's also, of course, part of that as well as this whole built-in kind of thing of her, uh, you know, him, him wanting her, basically, or rather right. she wants him, and he seems to want her but doesn't want to touch her, which in some ways, does that harken back to a lot of complicated teenage <laughs> Yes, I think it does. I mean, you know, he had, uh, he was worried, you know, the smell of her blood, would he want to kill, would he kill her, would he be able to control himself? You know, that's something I think people struggle with. Can I control myself? How far do I go with my desires? What should I do? 
feelings of guilt, you know, and um, her own desire to be with some person that she knew was very dangerous to her, you know, so just balancing that out, the bad boy kind of thing, fantasy. I think it was so interesting because they had that great chemistry at my house. You could tell that they were magnetized toward each other and they both fascinated with each other, which I think strongly translated on screen, you know. But Kristen was under 18. So I remember uh, right after the audition, I said to Rob, in our country, it's illegal to do have sex with a 17-year-old girl, so watch it. <laughs> and I wanted all the female uh, actors to stay at one hotel and the male actors to stay at another. <laughs> that didn't really work out too well either. <laughs> the age of consent in Britain is something like 14 or something? I think it is, and I was like, yeah. that's not our age here. <laughs> And how do you see, I mean, vampires, uh, we were talking about this a little early in the green room, but uh, they're a pretty, very flexible metaphor, you know, you use them, that have been used for many other, many things over the years, but uh, how do you feel they're used in Twilight? Well, that was kind of interesting. Stephanie Meyer, she had a dream about this vampire that when the vampire was out in the sunlight, instead of, you know, withering, it did the opposite. It almost glowed and glittered and sparkled, you know. So that was the basis of her book. And she just, she started writing the book and wrote it very quickly after that dream. So she invented her own kind of vampire. Now those rules had to be explained to the audience. So she has, you know, we have a scene where uh, Edward is explaining things to her. She's asking the questions, 20 questions. I got to know about this. We find out that they're vegetarian vampires. They're, the Cullen family is trying very hard not to kill humans or, you know, use any human blood. They go for animals. So they're not really vegetarian. But, um, but we did make Bella a vegetarian <laughs> in the movie. That was my little addition. Uh, the other thing was, I think, seeing these, this flexibility, like they were breaking the stereotype and he explained to her, you know, how all the myths you've heard, that's not really true for us. So it was kind of fun discovery um, of what kind of vampires they were and what their internal struggles were. Does, does being a, a woman approaching this material, being a female director, did that, that change basically the way the material is interpreted? Because I think you're, you're the only woman who directed one in the Twilight. Right, movies, right, right. right. All dudes direct the rest of them. So. I know, I know. It was kind of interesting because at first, Twilight um, was not an attractive property. It was optioned at Paramount, and then they put it into turnaround, and no other studio wanted to make it because they said a story with a female, you know, lead is not going to make any money, and the most money we ever made before on something like this was Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants, you know, that made like 29 million dollars or something on a fee, a girl's book. So this won't make much. So nobody believed in it at all. And I guess that's how I got the job. Because <laughs> like I, I felt passionate about that I could make this kind of beautiful and intoxicating movie that would be really interesting to uh, women and just connect us back to that first love. And I had done the movie 13 where I had Evan Rachel Wood, you know, is in every scene and you really feel that movie through through her point of view, and I wanted to do that too. Really feel what Bella's feeling the whole time and make it grounded in a way, you know. Yes, it's a metaphor for that first love, but it did feel very real. Kristen made it really real, and she's in almost every shot, you know. It's all how she's feeling. Speaking of horror, I always thought 13 was much more of a horror film than Twilight. Yes, yes. People thought that 13 was a horror movie for parents <laughs> because it's terrifying when you see Evan Rachel Wood, who's so awesome, on a big screen, like 80 feet high, screaming at her mother and turning on her mother. I mean, it is terrifying. Also, there's obviously, the, you know, Twilight's a big, you know, romantic fantasy, mostly, too. So... I know within the the horror people I talk to, they kind of scoff at Twilight, basically, because you know, it doesn't seem like a real vampire or two. How do you feel about that? Um, well, I think there's room for all kinds of vampires. I think we went really for uh, 
capturing the book, the feeling of the book and that feeling of that kind of crazy first love, dangerous first love. So, you know, I don't really like labels or, you know, I don't care about labels. I mean, I, you know, whatever, anyone can embrace it or not embrace it for whatever they want. I mean, you know, it doesn't bother me. Do you think, I mean, I don't want to, you know, constrain the stuff to gender. <laughs> However, you know, did do you think it helped actually being a female director taking on this kind of material? Were you able to give it something that connect helped it connect to its intended audience that somebody else couldn't? Well, I think so. I'm always attracted to material that has a female lead. I mean, I just am, because that's what I... You know, that's my experience, that's my life, that's what I bring to it. So I want to try to explore women's feelings, the feelings of girls, and get back to those emotions that we felt and bring those stories to the world. I did do one really cool movie that I loved, Lords of Dogtown, that was more male, but I really connected to the creativity of these scrappy kids from the wrong side of the tracks that made art out of, you know, broken concrete, you know. But I think that as a woman, I feel my twilight's quite different from the other ones. You know, uh, the first twilight is my twilight. <laughs> you know, it's really, you feel what Bella's feeling in the movie, I think. And you feel what Edward's feeling, too. You know, this push-pull between the two of them. The other ones yeah. are sort of more like action pictures. They after after ours was successful. After the first one was very successful. They gave a lot more money and a lot more visual effects and a lot more stunts, and so it got a little bit more spectacular spectacle instead of personal. It's interesting how many of these big franchises. The first film is is almost always the best one. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we got to make it, the first Twilight, kind of under the radar, more like an indie film. You know, nobody expected it to make much money. And uh, I was told, like, I kept telling the producers, like, there's a lot of fans online seem to really like this. We want to make the fans happy. They said, oh, that might just be 400 girls in Salt Lake City blogging about it. I'm like, I don't think so. Cut to... $400 million later. So it, it had a bigger reach than anybody ever expected. So then with that comes higher expectations, more money, more people, you know, uh, standing over the filmmakers. And I got to make it in a much more independent way. I was also looking at like the critical rank or whatever, the Rotten Tomatoes rankings with that kind of thing. And the first one is, is about rates about twice as high as the other one so all right so, <laughs> i didn't even know that that's really cool that. <laughs> hey that's cool i didn't know that i might make a t-shirt with that yeah when did you know that it was uh good well for instance when did you first see it with a mass audience and how did they react Oh, okay. I, I was in Austin, Texas at the uh, Alamo Draft House on like the sneak preview night before. And uh, I think I walked in there and I saw that they had done a theme thing where they had blood drinks and everybody's all dressed like vampires and stuff. And then these girls, I just made a surprise appearance and these girls rushed up to me and they started hugging me. I mean, I'm not even in the movie. They started hugging me and then one of them fainted like in my arms. I'm like, wow, <laughs> this is pretty intense for these fans, you know, <laughs> fainting, screaming. And then, of course, we had done a few sneak previews or sneak uh, appearances in London and actually in Rome before that, where we kind of got mobbed, Kristen, Rob, and I at a bookstore signing. So you started realizing, okay, this is going to be crazy. But that first weekend of Twilight, you know, we would do those little talks at the Arclight, and people on the first weekend on Saturday would come up and say, I've already seen it seven times. It had only opened that Thursday night at midnight. I guess they had just been every single screening, you know. <laughs> It's pretty cool because I've also done some crazy things like a bus tour up to all the locations where we had two buses of people that paid to go to all the locations and me narrating it. And it was hilarious. I would ask people on the bus little bizarre lines and little tiny trivia. Does anybody know who says burrito, my friend, in the movie? And everybody knew exactly who it was. So people really watch that movie a lot of times. It's kind of fun because usually you build in all those layers of detail as a director. You know, you care about every detail in the, of language and hair and, you know, every little 
strange thing that everybody's wearing. And most people don't notice it. They just feel the overall movie. But in this case, the fans noticed every, <laughs> down to the tiniest detail. I know one of our interviewees, I can't, was it actually Joe Hill, maybe? <laughs> Somebody said that basically it went to see the Twilight movies just basically to experience what Beatlemania was like. Yes, my eardrums were almost blown out at the premiere. Oh, and the night before I thought, I wonder if anybody's sleeping out for the premiere, if like anyone's already lining up. And I went over there with my little video camera. My friend was driving the car and at Westwood, it was like two blocks of tent camp. And I'm just like filming with my camera there. Like I couldn't believe it that people were lining up. People recognized me somehow through the camera, started yelling at me. I ended up signing over 1,500 autographs, pillowcases that night before the premiere. It's so cool because, you know, I love it that it actually brought people from all around the world. There were people from almost every continent in that line that came to see the premiere, and they all had new friends, you know, from all over the world. That's cool, whatever makes people have fun and feel connected to a group. You know, I think it's great. Now, when you were growing up, did you have any favorite, uh, you know, what vampires were you exposed to and did you have a <laughs> preference? <laughs> Ooh. Um, well, I grew up in a little tiny hick town in South Texas, right on the Mexican border, and it wasn't a big movie town. We mostly had a couple Clint Eastwood movies would occasionally play there, and mostly Spanish-language films. So I wasn't a big movie buff, but I did see, like, I remember one of those, like, Disney animated Ice Queen, you know, being terrified and screaming at, running out of the theater. So I like to be scared like everybody else, and I loved Evil Dead. Two with the flying eyeball. That was when I was older. Oh, of course, the classics like Rosemary's Baby, you know, and just leaning into the frame and just a psychological terror. I would love that kind of thing. Did you read any of vampire books or like Salem's Lot or something like that? Well, I did read all the Anne Rice. I guess that hit me at the right time. So I just devoured all the interview with the vampire and everything. Just the idea that they could be living among us, which is the same you know, as Twilight, they could really be here. Somebody, you you could be a vampire, you know. That's kind of exciting. And the Anne Rice thing, that's actually, we talk a little bit more of that, about that because that's another thing where, you know, she was writing and did her own spin on vampires. Yes. Very different than what had come before, so. And those books, um, so about how old were you when you first started reading those? Well, I can't really remember, but I do know that I was intrigued. I love them. I did devour all of them. You know, it was just such a fun escape and imagination. And, of course, she just gets so detailed and gruesome and, you know, outrageous. you got to love it. <laughs> Sexy. Fun. Did you see the film? And did you, did you... Oh, yeah. Uh, except for the Tom Cruise blonde, not good, but the rest of it. Yummy. Yes, delicious. <laughs> when you were making Twilight or uh, prepping for Twilight, what kind of visual influences were you looking at or what were you drawing from? Because I noticed your, your notebook seemed to have a lot, uh, yeah. a lot of sources. In it. Well, actually, I was looking more at things like planet Earth because I really wanted the environment to be a character. So I love planet Earth as I went into the rainforest and things like that. Not rainforest, but misty forest. And also I did actually go just take a lot of photographs myself in Oregon because my some of my family lives there. And I was really interested in creating this fog and misty atmosphere, which is interesting. That's why Stephanie Myers set it in Forks, Washington, set the whole novel there. She'd never even been there, but she Googled what's the the most overcast place in the United States that has the least amount of sun year-round, that this is where her vampires would move to so they could walk around incognito without sparkling. So that was one of our big things is just creating this beautiful feeling of, like, everything is blue. We never could have the sun coming out and just creating this fog layer to create an atmosphere that was very consistent for the whole film. Are you uh, Team Edward or Team Jacob? <laughs> oh, that's evil. Um, well, I definitely think that vampires are a lot sexier than werewolves. 
um, personally, you know, vampires, are, they're just suave and cool and fabulous. So I had to admit Team Edward, yeah. You know, the werewolves weren't so much a factor in the first film, you know. Right. But I do really like one thing about the werewolves because I really loved you know, the Native American culture that we kind of got to dive into, got to meet people, the tribes and La Push. We went and did a cast a wide net where we went to everywhere to try to find people as authentic as possible for those roles. Uh, and that, that was a good challenge because there's not a lot of acting gigs for Native Americans. So there's not a lot of people that have had much experience doing that. So, you know, that's what was one of our challenges to really outreach and bring people in from the communities. Of course, vampires may be sexier, but what interests you about werewolves? Yeah, just the shapeshifter, I think. That notion of that a person that you think that you know or could shapeshift and change on you, obviously a metaphor for everybody that we work with and talk to and that we love and our family members as they change, as their character changes. And I think that's a pretty cool part of mythology of a werewolf. And we do see people, we've seen it lately in the whole Me Too and all that, where you have a person that seems very charming or very, you know, sophisticated and cultured. And then in the privacy of their own hotel room, they can shift into a monster. You know, that's pretty interesting. And as a woman, you're worried at all times, like if you are on a date or whatever, and the guy seems really cool and you say, no, I'm not into that. I don't want to go that far. Are they going to be a gentleman? Are they going to turn into a monster? And I think that's kind of interesting. <laughs> and those where, and some of those monsters that we've been reading about, they are very hairy and they kind of look like werewolves. Yeah. Directing genre films sometimes is a way for people to break in and, and speaking in diversity and all that. Just the clearly so difficult for you know female directors or uh, to get a you know, foothold in this. So um, was Twilight a way into that? Of course. Well, even after that, though, I know you had some problems. You know, right? So. Well, for example, Twilight was direct. The first one was directed by a woman, and then they hired men to direct all the other ones. They didn't give another woman a chance. And then The Hunger Games only came because Twilight was successful. You could have a young female lead. All five Hunger Games were directed by men. Both Divergents were directed by men. They did not give anybody else a chance. Even though those books were written by women, the lead characters were women, and ours was super successful and led to everything, nobody else got that chance. So suddenly you had another group of, you know, four guys from Twilight, five movies that are all those men could rack up big, successful, you know, things on their scorecard so they could get hired for another big movie and another big budget movie, another one. So they're like that far ahead of all those women that could have directed those films. It is depressing. It is frustrating as hell. We need more chances. I mean, I proved that I could make something for almost, for very little money, make a fortune. And not just me. I mean, there's a lot of other women that, given that chance, would have done great, too. Frustrating. <laughs> Time to change. <laughs> but still, even with all the noise that's being made about it, we still get mansplained by dudes at the studios and everything. And, you know, it's still a struggle and it's just as tough no matter what. I thought after Twilight, which made so much money, then I would have a lot more opportunities. I'd be able, I thought I was going to get, you know, what I heard about male directors when their movies made money. Oh, the studio gave them a car or something like that. And I went in the next uh, Monday after all the big successful weekend, 69 million opening weekend. And I got a mini cupcake. <laughs> I mean, I could have had two, but I yeah. only wanted one. Yeah. Or not just a car. How about a three-picture deal? How about what movie do you want to make next? Or, you know, how can we support you at all? <laughs> no. Instead, I guess it was just an argument about budgets over the next film, right? Well, the next films, they, you know, they gave them much bigger budgets and everything. A lot more special effects. Too many, maybe. <laughs> Let's talk a little about the characters in the film. So, and what interests you about them? So, for instance, first starting with uh, Bella, basically. So, what did what did you see in her that uh, she wanted to 
bring out? Well, I think definitely as as Stephanie Roeder, she's a very relatable character. As we know <laughs> for a fact, millions of women all ages from 11-year-old girls to 85-year-old women could relate to Bella. For some reason, she really, uh, Stephanie Myers tapped that universal chord of just desire, longing, wanting to be seen, wanting to be noticed, wanting to connect with somebody else, you know, with somebody that you love, wanting to experience love and be loved and be appreciated for yourself, you know, so that a universal yearning and longing, I think, was very important. And I think that Kristen was able to tap into that. And in some ways, Bella is a bit of a cipher. You know, she didn't have a lot of interest written in the book. Like, you know, for me, I grew up, you know, drawing every day, building little miniature things and all that, and just devouring this kind of book and doing this kind of art project and, you know, um, building a lot of stuff as a kid. I always built things. But I think that... Uh, Bella didn't have those things for me to grab onto. And she was more like a person, a seeker searching for what she wanted to do and what her love would be, you know, and what, what her, her future would be. So that's, that was a good challenge, you know. The other characters, maybe, for example, the vampires had a richer history because they'd been alive for a hundred years and you could actually get into what artifacts they might have had, where they might have lived, what cultural things they cared about. I mean, uh, Rob Pattinson would write letters in character to his father slash mentor, you know, Peter Facinelli, Dr. Cullen, you know, where they would talk about the internal struggles, the existential issues they were dealing with, uh, fighting their very nature, you know, and how to be a good vampire, a vegetarian vampire, to coexist in this world, you know, and manage their own desires and their own physicality. He at first seems like a real jerk, basically, at first. As a shield to keep her away, you know. So, yeah, Edward does have to try to keep her at arm's length, but he can't really control his feelings, and he tries to find a way. Plus, it also seems to basically do have the opposite effect on her, right? Well, yeah, the more, the harder we have to struggle, the more we want things. <laughs> One little cutaway when they're in the chemistry class, it's a close-up of her, and she gives him this look where I thought, oh, that's very well acted, so because she really like has this... This, it's all right there. Yeah, so fascinated and drawn into. And Kristen was very adamant. She said, I feel I can do this movie with Robert Pattinson. I feel it. I feel that connection with him. And you better hire. <laughs> and Taylor comes off, you know, he plays really well in that film, too. So yeah. later on, obviously, becomes more of a big thing in it but. right and he was only um he was only 15 you know and he had done some other cool movies but i think he really put his heart and soul into it and i had him meet with some of the you know native americans from the tribe he was supposed to be with talk to them trying to like dig himself as deep as he could into an understanding of that culture that he was supposed to be from so that was a good challenge. Uh, usually on the movies I've done, I had done before that, Lords of Dogtown and 13, we had just a deep dive into the reality of the lives of the people. So our research, myself and the actors, was very grounded and very real and living the moment and training to be skateboarders and training to be surfers and hanging out with Nikki Reed and her mom. In this case, we, we tried to find some real vampires to hang out with. <laughs> Actually, I did go online and found people that claimed to be real vampires, but that didn't prove too useful. Was um, Bella's relationship with her mother in Twilight like a, a way to make up for the relationship of the mother and daughter in 13? Yes, and some that's kind of fun. Uh, so Sarah Clark, you know, played her mom, and in preparing for the movie, we did a lot of improvs because I like to do rehearsals and improvs. So we did a lot of improvs that weren't even in the film, but we had improvs with her and her mom, like the moment her mom had to tell her, "Look, I'm in love with this guy. I think it'd be cool if you go live with your father for a while." Like, how did she feel when her mother said that to her? So we acted out that scene, 
And we, we lived that scene, so that could be in Kristen's bloodstream when she did scenes with her mom. We did scenes with her and her father uh, improvising like when she was 11 years old and he took her to Disneyland. It was an awkward time. They hadn't seen each other in six months. How do you rebond with your dad? How do you reconnect just moving in there? So we tried to create like really grounded relationships by improving all those scenes before we did the scenes that are actually in the movie. Well, she seems more like her dad than her mother seems like, in that her father is a man of almost zero words. Exactly. She's, she's pretty tough Right, exactly. Yes, yes. And I love that father-daughter relationship. I love Billy Burke. You know, he brought a lot to that character. He was a lot of fun because he's not your typical sheriff, uh, cop. He's just got a lot of quirks and personalities and soulful. He's a rock star himself, you know. Have you uh, seen any other, like, current vampire films or anything? Oh, uh, Let the Right One In, the Swedish version and the American version. I thought those were fantastic. I really love those, too. What's your other ones that I should have seen? Actually, those are actually the really the best right? ones. Right? <laughs> Weren't they great? I loved I thought they were fantastic, yeah. Really, not a lot has been happening in that, so it's one of those things that kind of waxes and wanes, it seems, you know. But those were great, too, because, like, ours was in Pacific Northwest in, like, foggy, mossy tree, and then that's in the snow, like another place that we haven't really felt it, you know, felt the vampire. So I, I love it. I think vampires should go to every climate. Antarctica vampires, yes. Well, 30 Days of Night had our, uh, our Oh, good. Yeah, that was very gruesome. Yeah, yes, yes. And, yeah, very different than Twilight. So. <laughs> could not be polar extreme, yeah. One thing I've been talking to you about people, in fact, uh, the vampires seem to have this duality in how they're characterized, and that you have, like, the more monstrous vampire, and then you have the <laughs> romantic vampire, and... I think in those Twilight and Thirty Days of Night seem the most extreme examples of oh, my what you God. can do with a vampire. Yeah, totally extreme uh, uh, from uh, Thirty Days of Nights and Twilight. You could not get more extreme. Is that a male-female thing, Alice? I think a lot of women love horror and love all that gore, and I think that's great, and a lot of guys don't love all that. So it's really to taste, you know. I don't know if it's a gender thing. You know, for me, I'm not that big on all the gore. I'm pretty squeamish. Like, I vomit when I see, like, gross things sometimes. So uh, for me, I think I just connected to the character of this girl in the book, you know. And I really thought it was a fantastic challenge to create that emotional intoxication of first love. That's actually what made me want to do the movie. I thought, first love, can I show that on screen? Can I make people as crazy about a cinematic version of the as the book made people crazy? And yeah, I think we did make them pretty crazy. <laughs> Seems like it. <laughs> But I don't think that would have happened if it wasn't a vampire, you know? Like if Edward was just a normal, good-looking dude that played basketball or skateboard or something, I don't think it would have gotten people into that kind of frenzied, emotional, high stakes. The stakes are so high if this person might kill you, so that can whip you up into that forbidden love, you know? One thing about uh, horror films, genre films in general, is uh, particularly the horror genre, it seems to lend, give itself over to opera. An operatic. Yeah. So looking at Twilight that way, that kind of makes perfect sense if you look at it as a certain kind of opera, I guess. Right. right. And we did try to make the sets with that beauty that is appreciation for nature, too. It's such gorgeous locations we had. All We shot in Portland, Oregon, and then it was all like around Portland, Oregon in the Columbia River Gorge, you know, and and these incredibly old forests. And I feel sort of proud that people now go on tours there and they've preserved, you know, that area where we shot the meadow and different things. And people go visit it. There's little plaques all over. You can go on tour and see it. But it's cool. It's getting a lot of people out into nature and loving it. You know, that was one of my goals, too, you know. 
It's also interesting the color palette of it, or because it's predominantly cold and blue, even though it's like this movie about you know romance and first love, which would seem to be more of a warmer kind of feeling. So it's you... it's the color palette is very misty blue, silvers, even all the the Cullens, the vampires' clothing were all the colors of Arctic wolves: silvers, whites, blues, grays, blacks. And at first, Bella has a little bit warmer tones that she wears, a little bit of browns. But as she gets drawn into the Cullen's world, she goes into all the blues, too. We did not allow any yellows, reds, oranges. You'll never see that color in the movie. Everything is a very controlled palette. One funny thing about that is Kristen Stewart is like uh, seems paler than any of the vampires. Exactly. That's why she was the perfect person to be converted and turned into a vampire. Now, that was not my choice. I want to say something about that. I wanted to change a lot of the Cullens into diverse casting. I thought that Alice, in my mind, when I read her character in the book, I thought she had to be, you know, Asian. She just seemed like she was this amazing, that's just how I saw her, and I wanted a lot more diversity there. But Stephanie really only let me have diversity in the nomadic vampires and in the other friends at school, because I think she had seen it in her dream in a certain way, and she just didn't want to deviate too much from that. But so that was a good challenge, too. You know, we have an African-American vampire, Eddie Gathigi, who is one of the nomadic vampires. And at first there was an uproar when he was cast. And then I said, wait, if you actually, you know, it's supposed to be pale skin and their skin is super pale. So actually, if you read the book, it said his skin is the color of an olive. And I said, and there are black olives. And so he put that, he tweeted that out and then everybody embraced it. Like he's really good. He's one of the more sympathetic, the yeah. only sympathetic one of the nomad vampires. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he's great. He's a lot of fun. Was it difficult or fun or both to shoot uh, those fight scenes? <gasps> Super fun to shoot the fight scenes because uh, contrary to popular belief that people might not think women like to direct action or see action, we do like to direct action and it's fun. And a lot of those scenes were not in the book. That big fight scene happened off camera. I'm like, hell no, that's not going to be off camera. I want to see it. I want to have a badass fight. I want to try to think of stuff I haven't seen before. I came up with that idea, let's let him, they're so forceful and strong and he's so passionate, let's let crash through the floorboards and do all this stuff. And I said, I wanted to do the fight scene first, day one. I wanted to get the hardest thing over with first and I also wanted to do it first because I wanted to have time to rehearse and be coordinating with second unit and all the stunt people. So we set that thing up and I mean, that was a blast, except for in the book, it was written to be in a ballet studio with all mirrors and we did every wall is mirrored. So I thought maybe I can be on set and hide in like a mirror silver cape so I won't get in the shots. I, we tried every technique. Basically, you know, no, that did not work. So that was tricky to get out of the shots, you know, when it was a fully 360 mirrored environment. But that was a lot of fun. I loved it. The baseball sequence was an absolute blast. In a way, we were out at the Columbia River Gorge in the distance, you could see three different spectacular waterfalls and this gorgeous river. And then we had the baseball sequence, you know, where we're having like, how do vampires play baseball? How do you imagine doing that? It was super fun. Most of the actors didn't even know how to play regular baseball. So they had to be taught how to bat, hit, run fast. You know, we create all these cool rigs. When the nomadic vampires came up, we made this magic carpet of plexiglass sheets pulled on winches that they would move at a special and they were covered with leaves, the plexiglass. So we got to come up with a lot of crazy cool stuff. But the weather did not cooperate, I must say. Whenever are in the Pacific Northwest, yeah. so what do you... You think, you read the charts, okay, it's overcast, but it's not overcast all day. The sun might pop out. But if the sun comes out, your vampires have to sparkle, and that costs a lot of money in CGI. So you have to wait till the clouds come over. We were literally doing cloud dances, literally cloud whatever, seances, trying to sprinkle the clouds, anything to get the clouds to come back. 
<laughs> so we had a lot had to have a lot of tricky stuff like if the sun did come out then we had to go into this rain cave and make rain and if it was rainy we couldn't shoot out in the open because the makeup would run too much so it was like a wild nightmare for the ad to schedule that movie but that made that was kind of fun We'll take the challenges. Twilight vampires didn't have pointy teeth, right? So. No, they didn't have pointy teeth. They didn't have fangs, no fangs. They were, uh, maybe they would have sanded them down in, to fit in better to high school. How was the uh, sparkly skinned effect done? Well, I wanted to minimize that, you know, because I was worried like an adult male sparkling could be a little scary. Um, so I had the least amount of sparkling in the movie possible, but ILM did that for us. So we just worked on techniques that would be subtle and as realistic as it could be, you know, that iridescent shimmer, you know. That was a tricky part. <laughs> is, is Twilight a feminist film? Is Twilight a feminist film? Yeah, I would say so in a way, because we do show that uh, the whole movie is from Bella's point of view. But could she have been less passive or more of a badass? Yeah, maybe. Um, but that is the character arc through the whole series of books where she finds her strength. So in the first one, she didn't get to be quite as much of a badass as she does by the end. There's a few um, feminist criticisms of the book, and one of which, uh, obviously, a lot of this is all stuff that's actually in, in the books as opposed to, you know, what you personally brought to it. But, like, in the sense, the book sort of reverses cliched sexual roles, which is that the Bella's eager to have premarital sex and the man keeps saying no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> At the same time, it does that also reinforce this idea that young men's sexuality is dangerous and young women must be protected from them? Oh, that's interesting. Uh, does it reinforce the idea that young men's sexuality is dangerous and women should be protected from them? Now, I didn't even know that was a thing to reinforce because it seems more like people are nervous about young women's sexuality and they're scared if a woman is openly sexual or interested in sex. That's more feared and more taboo in our society. Is men's sexuality uh, dangerous? Well, we know it is dangerous um, because of what's happened lately. We find when men do turn into predators, it can be really destructive, actually not just to that one person that experienced it, but to the whole world, the destruction that we've seen, you know, on a global level and on a, a deep cultural level, that kind of mentality. So I don't think that Twilight fits into any of those categories at all. Do you think that was part of Edward's appeal at some level is this basically he is, you know, he's like aware that there's this dangerous sexuality within him and he's trying his best to suppress it, but it's like tearing him apart that that's dramatizing that. Right. And that Edward is a deeply moral character and he is a very conscious being, you know, a soulful, conscious being. I think that is one of his appeals that you women feel like, oh, I could trust this person. He loves her so much. Obviously, it's a fantasy <laughs> that you're going to have the most handsome, beautiful, amazing guy in the world that's madly in love with you and will take care of you and protect you against anybody else that's trying to harm you. I mean, it's a great fantasy. <laughs> that's why I literally was in Vancouver one day scouting for another movie, and a van load of women saw me, recognized me on the street, and these were very attractive, like 35-year-old women in a, a upscale van. They traveled all the way from Florida just to go to the places, the hotel that Rob had stayed in that hotel one night. They jumped out and swarmed me. They had written their own self-published books about their twilight addictions. They had pocket-sized Edwards that they were driving cross-country with, you know, and these were good-looking, great-looking women with hot husbands and everything, but they just told me all about their obsessions. They made their husbands, and they would uh, one of them, the husband had to get the same car that Edward had, and and he had to be called. His name was Sean. She called him Seanward. You know, very strange <laughs> people trying to create this fantasy of the perfect man. <laughs> it's amazing. They traveled with Edward action figures. They traveled with Edward action figures, and then they found how to take selfies. You know, so that they would look at the same scale as them in the shots. You know, it was pretty cool. That's yeah, that's Pretty scary. <laughs> that's, 
People lost their jobs over Edward obsessions. One of them brought a cutout of Edward into the dental office where they had the staff meeting, and then she refused to have Edward leave, even though her boss said he's not a person and only staff is supposed to be in this meeting. She wouldn't take the Edward cutout out, and she lost her job. <laughs> so clearly filling some psychological need. <laughs> some deep need, exactly. And there are Edward pillowcases, I mean, and beach towels. And do you think all of this is basically explained because... In reality, real men just suck. And- <laughs> hey, I heard that a lot of guys, uh, teenagers, went to their hairdressers all across the country and tried to get the Edward hairstyle after this. Well, he's got great hair. It's- yeah, he does. <laughs> I don't think that real men suck, but they don't have hairstylists and, you know, screenwriters and directors telling how and wardrobe stylists and all that. You know, we do a lot of work to create the illusions in movies. Well, everybody, you know, if, if seeking perfection is a doomed quest. <laughs> yes, exactly. Also, our cinematographer, Elliot Davis, did a beautiful job lighting uh, Bella and Edward. I mean, if you look, every frame is kind of a piece of art, I think, you know. And we don't walk around with all those lights every day in real life. Yeah, they look very glamorous, that's for sure. One, one thing that uh, was very interesting to me when I started working on Twilight was when you start diving into the history of vampires and you realize that so many cultures had a vampire-like creature or myth that people really seem to have this need to create an idea of people would always be searching for immortality. So somehow it was very common that if you could drink human blood, you could be immortal or you could look more beautiful. Or So there was this great fear, and it's in so many historical references and everything, so many drawings of the vampire mythology all over the world, China, you know, Germany, of course, everywhere. So I thought that was fascinating. I, I wanted to layer that into the movie. The only way we really could do that a little bit was you see Bella when she starts to get suspicious. Who... Who is this guy? What's going on? I don't understand. She's trying to put the pieces together that she goes on her computer and starts searching for the history of vampires. And so you see a little taste of that, you know, as she's trying to understand. And then finally there's that really cool climatic scene, you know, in the forest. You know, she's going to confront him. She's finally got the courage to confront him. And he asks her to say the word out loud, you know, what is what is it that you think I am? She finally says, you know, vampire. So it's it's kind of, I, I kind of loved all that leading up to that and all the beautiful old drawings and weird woodcuts of people that were accused of vampires in Transylvania and stuff. It was so fascinating, the recorded history of vampires. You said that's one of the things that pulled you into the project? Yeah, it kind of drew me in because I was just, every day, of course, everybody is searching for the miracle, anti-aging serums and creams and all this stuff. And, you know, what can I eat to superfoods and all, we're just all trying to make ourselves into superhuman or into, you know, superstars. And, and, you know, the idea of drinking blood, human blood, does that create that bee pollen, uh, rhinoceros horns, you know, this, this eternal quest that many humans have had through history to be more beautiful, to live longer, not to age, you know. And the idea that a vampire doesn't age, that this kid can look gorgeous, He's 17. How long have you been 17? You know, over 100 years I've been 17. He's always going to look like that. So Bella is desperate in the later books to change because she doesn't want to be super old with the 17-year-old boyfriend. That's not a good look. (laughs) Hey, can't get enough of the conversation? Eli Roth's History of Horror is now streaming on Shudder, full and commercial-free. At Shudder, we're the best selection in streaming genre. It's handpicked and curated by experts, including me. We cover the amazing spectrum of horror thrillers and suspense, including breakout revenge essentials like Mandy and Revenge, all-time classic The Changeling, horror fantasy hit series A Discovery of Witches, and our new Shudder original documentary, Horror Noir, A History of Black Horror. Start your free two-week trial with promo code SHUDDERPOD. That's promo code S-H-U-D-D. E-R-P-O-D. 
History of Horror Uncut is a Shudder original podcast. Hosted by Sam Zimmerman, produced by Liam Finn, sound designed by Jeremy Lee, music composed by Michael Tioli. Special thanks to executive producers Eli Roth, Kurt Sienga, Jonathan Koch, Stephen Michaels, James McNabb, Allison Berkeley, and Joseph Freed, as well as the AMC Networks and AMC Studio Development and Production teams, who allowed us at Shudder to make this. For Shudder, Owen Shiflett, Nicholas Lazo, and Robin Jones. This podcast is protected under the laws of the United States and other countries, and its unauthorized duplication, distribution, or exhibition may result in civil liability and criminal prosecution. Country of first publication, United States of America, History of Horror, Uncut. <laughs>